Hello and welcome to the Majlis podcast, Ready for Pride Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Mohammed Tahir, host of the Majlis and Ready for Pride Liberty's media manager here in Washington, D.C. UN-sponsored climate summit in Glasgow wrapping up this Friday, nearly two weeks after it has started. At the time of taping this conversation, I hear delegates are still discussing the terms of the final agreement on emission reduction, but I hear there are also significant differences. Emission and climate change is also a very relevant topic in Central Asia, and it is encouraging to see some notable presence at the summit of this profile from Central Asia. Among them is Sadr Jabarov, the Kyrgyz president, Sardar Berdmukhamedov, son of the Turkmen president, a leader-in-waiting some call both made some vague comments but the situation in central asia is as such that it requires not vague but concrete and practical steps to tackle the impending environmental catastrophe but in reality challenges are too many but solutions are far between on top of all no concrete ideas are on the table leaders who used to meet once in a while during the 90s early 20 at least for a formality talk on climate and environment are no more happening. Meanwhile, the signs of the climate crisis are seen in growing and in some places suffocating. So there is so much to talk about. Joining me in the discussion are uh, Dr. Eric Friedman, a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter and the author of the Environmental Crisis in Central Asia. Dr. Friedman is also Knight Chair of the Environmental Journalism Center at the Michigan State University. Riskel Satka, researcher and writer with a full-time focus on issues relating to the environment and climate change in Central Asia, especially his native Kyrgyzstan. Bakhtigul Chinebayeva, RFRL's Kyrgyz service journalist who is currently on an assignment at Glasgow Climate Summit, but usually is based in Bishkek, is also with us. And Bruce Panier, the editor of Ready for Pride Liberty's Central Asia blog, Kishlok Owazi. Bruce is joining us from Prague. Thank you, colleagues, for joining us today on this very, very important conversation. So there is so much to talk about. I guess the basic question is what comes to our mind when we think of climate change and its current and possible future implications in Central Asia. But in this context, I think we could start the conversation from the Glasgow summit. Bakhtigul is there for us. So tell us, Bakhtigul, where we are with the final declaration. When I was preparing for this show, delegates were not fully on board. So where we stand? I am now off from the venue because of the, all the negotiations talking has been. And now we are waiting for division of these negotiations. Now, uh, today they have some national uh, plenary sessions. So I went to some of them and I was there. And today in a COP venue, that was a big, massive uh, protest rally of yours. So I attended this youth protest rally as well, and from our delegation from Central Asian Pavilion, I couldn't see anyone because they talked their uh, plenary sessions and side events uh, yesterday, yeah. and some of the NGOs and one member from Kurdish youth group stayed there in a continue. So now I am in a Glasgow center, so I'm waiting for negotiations, decisions, final documents to be what, released. Uh, Bartikul, what, what are some of the sticking points that they are not able to, to agree on? So there was uh, lots of talking on the fossil fuel and net zero emission. And yesterday it was talking uh, agreement on China and U.S. 
proposal from uh, this point. So there was a draft document signed on, but they didn't agree on the final stage. Probably India and African countries uh, demanding some changes to this document. So today uh, they have lots of rallies over there uh, from African countries as well, so demanding to make a change on fossil fuel production policy and uh, net zero policy in developing countries. So that's why they are now negotiating uh, all these policies. And it seems that they will do it until morning times like 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. Okay. So we are waiting for it. Okay. Uh, it's going to be a long night tonight, so I'm sure things will change yes, by the time uh, this podcast will be up on Sunday as we are taping it on Friday. So on, on Central Asian presence in the summit, Bakhtigul, you had the Kyrgyz president there who spoke about various climate-related topics. Tell us, please, what you heard from Japarov. So Japarov had his speech on the second day of Glasgow uh, Summit, and that was a very powerful speech. He made a statement on glacier issues and mountainous uh, regions in the world that developing, developed countries should do more action to um, the mountainous places to support them financially and he estimated the mitigation sum like seven billion dollars mitigation sum of Kyrgyzstan to net zero policy about seven billion dollars and he asked for support and he invited some investors to investing on hydro energy power section into Kyrgyzstan also he estimated that Kyrgyzstan will reach net zero point by 2050 with support so very interesting points there. We will have to break them down as to what they mean in terms of practicality of all that and what to expect coming out of this, uh, these pledges in a minute. But there were also some other names from Central Asia, not on the level of Jabarov, like not on the level of president, but uh, Berdo Muhammadov's son was there. You know, besides being president's son, he also has a number of official titles in the country. Bruce, you just had a feature story on Berdo Muhammadov Jr. Uh, speech uh, at the summit where you say it was confusing or vague what he was saying tell us more about about what he said well i suppose vague is a little bit is a better term although you know i was it was kind of curious i suppose that he even went to something like this i mean it, i agree it's it's a non-political event you know well in theory anyway you're talking about the climate and improvement but they weren't going to talk about any kind of political unions or anything like that so it would seem like a safe event for for someone from Turkmenistan to show up at this. But, you know, when they're talking about about reducing methane emissions and, you know, and, and a bunch of other gas emissions too, but it was just very strange to see him come out there and, and make, you know, what normally would have been, you know, if you think about Turkmenistan, I don't know, 25 years ago or something like that, and think about a lot of countries that, you know, small countries that produce some gas and stuff, if they said, we'll cut emissions, you wouldn't think much about it. You know, small country, less than 5 million people uh, in the middle of the Eurasian continent and everything like that how much harm could they be doing but the truth is they're doing a bunch of harm you know i mean that, that that bloomberg article that they had last month i mean just really laid it down that they're they're behind the united states and russia as far as uh, methane emissions 
which is amazing because when you think of the populations and size of the United States and Russia, it's hard to believe that Turkmenistan, you know, little Turkmenistan, is is third in like releasing these toxic emissions into the atmosphere. And this is the vague part. He said, "Of course, we'll work toward reducing our emissions." I'm like, "Well, how much? I mean, you're a chronic, you're a major offender yeah. of this. You know, could you be a little more specific about how much?" And he said, "You know, and we'll work toward toward you know zero emissions and stuff." And and he also said that uh, they were interested in uh, this document that they signed about you know cutting methane emissions he didn't say they were going to sign it he just said we were they were studying it and they were interested in it you know even though like i think 103 countries had already signed it by the time he made that statement with turkmenistan wasn't one so you know like i said i'm sure to most delegates who had no idea where turkmenistan was or what the situation was it probably didn't mean much but if you follow events in turkmenistan you realize that it was absolutely ridiculous i mean he went up there and and just kind of glossed over a bunch of uh, very important facts and just went right to like, yeah, we're, we're on board more or less with you and, and we're interested in hearing more. Interesting. Uh, Let me also bring you in Riskeldi here. I mean, earlier, Bakhtigul was talking about some of the pledges made by Jabarov there, like especially what one of those are kind of interesting, the pledge that he made, uh, what's that, by 2050. Yeah, there were a couple of points there uh, in Jabarov's uh, speech in our earlier conversation that we had Riskeldi last week and I I remember you calling some of them interesting some of them not practical yeah of course the Kyrgyz president's presence and his trip to Glasgow is uh, I think it's a good uh, development of course but I think we have to be realistic as far as how Kyrgyzstan could uh, achieve these targets by 2050 the country is heavily hooked on coal on fuel uh, imports from Russia and in general, and hydropower is one of the biggest energy uh, industries in this country. And looking at the um, current energy crisis that the country is going through right now, uh, also we know that Kyrgyzstan doesn't have uh, financial support to work on these goals. And I think the crucial part of this is that this funding must be uh, coming from donors. And there's a big question as to will it be able to get that funding first of all, because country is dealing with uh, lots of issues, political, domestic, and with the climate change and the country's needs for energy consumption, especially during the winter. I think it's uh, unrealistic that by 2050, Kyrgyzstan will be able to achieve these goals. Mm-hmm. Just one one thought on that, Rizkeldi. Putting aside the applicability of what he's saying, what he said at this summit, is he understand what the problem is? Yeah. That's a good question because I think he understands and his background tells us a lot about his uh, history, especially with the Comtor gold mine. Hmm. He's one of those uh, opponents of this uh, gold mine and the uh, operations and the way uh, environmental damages occurred uh, during its operation. And I think as just as others, Japarov is just one of them. Opposition to gold mine was uh, one of those primary points that they were raising before was the glaciers. And I think this is a strong point that he's bringing up, and I think it's legitimate. But as far as everything else regarding countries' carbon neutrality by 2050, I mean, we have to bring it up the the point that uh, Kyrgyzstan doesn't really emit that much mm. in the first place. Mm. So combined Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and, and also Tajikistan, these two countries account for only 0.5% of the total global level. 
Mm. So, which tells us a lot about how is, uh, this country is doing in terms of carbon emission. Mm. But in general, I have to say that the country is not ready for that kind of change or adaptation because, first of all, they have to do more, a lot more to develop their renewables in this country. As far as what I'm seeing on the ground, it's not happening. So, mm. they, they don't even have laws that would just simply allow someone, let's say, with a, uh, a solar panels on your roof mm. to connect to a power grid which would help out and ease the energy crisis. Mm. It, it's not to say that everyone has these uh, solar panels, but it would be a good step mm. comparing to Uzbekistan, where mm. they just uh, introduced this practice of residential uh, solar panel owners. Uh, they could uh, literally uh, get hooked to the uh, power grid and start, start uh, selling uh, excess energy. Very, very interesting. You brought up the Uzbekistan. Like I was just uh, before the show, I was looking at a picture posted by an activist uh, on Twitter in Tashkent. You know, there were two pictures in the same frame comparing this week and the week before of Tashkent of the same place. So the, the latest one looks like a night so dusty. And the other one is like a day, I mean, a week before. It's, it's incredible to imagine living under such an environment out there. Yet, as I heard from Baktugul and I was looking into some news uh, about the Glasgow summit, I have not seen a high-level rep- representation from Uzbekistan, nor from Kazakhstan or Tajikistan, the three of the highest. The way I see it, I mean, these three countries are some of the worst affected in the region from the environment, climate change. So it's interesting to see that this thing, I guess, does not top to their priorities, list of priorities. So, uh, Eric, um, what is happening really? Is there anything, Mm -hmm. something strange happening in the region that we Mm -hmm. don't know of? I mean, especially this picture. I'm looking into this from a illiterate point of view in terms of climate and environment, but it sounded alarming to me. Let me start with the second question, because I saw those same images of Tashkent, and I heard from friends of mine about the situation there, and it reminded me of what I've seen photos of and images in, in parts of China and some of the political pressures to clean up and deal with those air quality problems in the run-up to the, the previous Olympics. What I'm seeing or what we're seeing and what people in Tashkent and parts of Kyrgyzstan are experiencing is the result of the spread of deserts and deforestation. And the scientists know that there'll be additional situations like that with huge economic and public health implications. And that ties into your first question, Mohammed, about uh, the countries that aren't actively at Glasgow and haven't made climate a priority. And I tend to look at things from a more global perspective on this because it's not just a question of resources, the financial resources of a relatively poor country like Tajikistan or like Kyrgyzstan, but it's a question of the haves and have-nots. So we see, for example, the extractive industries, the coal and the natural gas and oil coming from Turkmenistan and Kazakhstan, which the other countries lack. We see the political questions of where should these resources go? Should they be, these natural resources, should their priority be using them in Central Asia, in the company that produces them? Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty has reported on the pipeline controversy for Turkmenistan and should it send its natural gas to India, should it maybe send it to Europe. If it goes to Europe, 
Is that going to cause competition against Gazprom, for example, which uses natural gas prices as a political tool in its dealings with Ukraine and with Russia's dealings with Ukraine and, and with Moldova, for example? Are we going to see coal exported and as Kazakhstan could do or build relatively inexpensive coal-powered capacity within Kazakhstan to develop industry, which is what China has been doing with, with its huge coal reserves. So the fact that the leaders are or aren't there doesn't mean that they are unaware of the problems that literally every country in the world faces due to climate change. But to my mind, they're weighing high profile on that issue versus the economics and the public health and the politics and the national security aspects of controlling or trying to get access to fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, Bruce, and you, you look into these things, and also, uh, Riskel, you are on the ground um, as, you, as we speak. So this, this image from Tashkent, it's just so, so alarming. I mean, do you have a similar situation in Bishkek? Or have you heard anything from Almaty's usually does not have a good environment, especially in winters, like we have seen pictures from last year when, you know, it's just you could not see just a few meters uh, ahead of you. So what we are seeing today in Tashkent, is it just in Tashkent or we are also seeing similar things in uh, around the region? I don't think we're seeing that dust storm in Bishkek or in Almaty. That's normally, I think that happens in around the Aralsi area and Tashkent City. But I, th- but interesting thing is that the activists in Tashkent City were blaming the authorities for cutting massively cutting the trees in the city because of the uh, construction boom in the city. Hmm. That's one thing that I've uh, picked up from the uh, Uzbek language press. For the most part, and actually, this activist protests were happening for the last two or three years, as far as I remember, because Tashkent was going through a, a massive land disputes. There have been quite a, a large number of evictions, forced evictions, and, uh, and not only in Tashkent City, to that matter, but around the country. But in general, going back to the dust storm, I think we have to have this Aral Sea disaster in the picture, because that's that's where the, the main problem is. And the Uzbek government was quite upfront about uh, trying to fix the problem. And they, uh, to my knowledge, they're planning a Aralsi summit in upcoming months. And I think they will raise this issue again. And it definitely re- depends on how much funding they will get to fix the problem. Can I jump in real quick? Yeah, sure. Say, but dude, this isn't the first dust storm they had in recent years. Hmm. They had that big salt storm specifically from the Aral Sea that, that hit parts of northeastern Turkmenistan and Karakal Pakistan and areas in western Uzbekistan in general. So, you know, okay, this was just dust, sand. Uh, but, you know, I mean, they had, a, from a health point of view, a much worse storm just not that long ago. Hmm. So you would think that, that this happening now and remembering what just happened, what, like three years ago or something with the Aral Sea dust, salt dust storm, that they would get the messages happening. Now, I, I know that they're going to have this Aral Sea summit, supposedly, but but I also have to mention, too, that, you know, the, the reaction from some from top officials in Uzbekistan to what happened was not what I would call the right response to, to what went on. Uh, Mirzi Oyev had made a comment that the dust wasn't from Uzbekistan. Um, and the, the Tashkent mayor picked up on that, Jahangir Artikojayev, uh, picked up on that and said that. He said, this isn't our dust. This is dust that came from Kazakhstan. <laughs> what does it and matter, he, you know? It, it's... He finished by saying that the winds have changed and the dust is blowing back to Kazakhstan. You know, that's not taking it seriously. 
at yeah. all. You know, that, that's looking for a cheap scapegoat uh, for why the problem happened. But but to suggest that, that your country has nothing to do with this, you know, it has echoes of Turkmenistan yeah. saying that they're worried that dust could carry some harmful illnesses into the country while trying to mask that, you know, they're talking about COVID. Very interesting the way they, they are reacting to that. I mean, we have seen earlier similar dust uh, affecting various towns and cities in Turkmenistan. But in other, some of the other Central Asian countries, like in various cities in Tajikistan, especially in Dushanbe, in Almaty, in Kazakhstan, and Astana, I guess, you know, we are seeing the impact of climate change or the environmental change in those countries. Year after year, it is growing. Uh, Eric, how do you see this change taking place year after year? Uh, let me just go back to one point on the arrow because I think it ties it in. World Health officials, Reporters Without Borders and other NGOs have been tracking respiratory diseases in Karkopakstan for more than two decades now as a result of the shrinkage of the Aral Sea and the release of all those chemicals from fertilizers and, and pesticides. So, But there's been no will of government to address that. The government in Astana, in Nur Sultan, took action to build a dam to rebuild part of the, the Aral Sea, the northern Aral Sea, but it wasn't primarily motivated by concern about public health. It was concern about the economics, uh, the devastation financially, the tourism and fisheries industries had taken as a result of the close to disappearance of the Aral Sea. So we have to look at the, the fact that there have been warnings, there have been clear indications for decades and no will and not enough financial resources to deal with it. And I also think that the the governments are not that concerned about the public being outraged, but the citizenry being outraged about the lack of action on the problems, even when it gets to the point where you can't see five meters in front of you walking down the street of a capital city. And that the lack of press freedom, I think, has helped governments control potential public outrage because if journalists are unable to report on these issues, then the public doesn't know much about them and there's less pressure on on government from individual citizens and maybe also from NGOs to, to take action. In terms of the causes, yes, certainly you brought up the fertilizer and also RLC. What else we could uh, talk about when it comes to the causes of this change? Perhaps, Bhaktigul, you know, I'm also interested in your take, and you just had a very insightful documentary on climate change in uh, in Kyrgyzstan. So anything that comes to your mind in terms of what are the, the factors that is contributing to this change in Central Asia in terms of the growing concerns about climate change? and environmental challenges. Central Asia isn't a special place that which, uh, you know, apart from other world. So if world has climate issues, Central Asia has to have climate issues as well. So temperature is getting higher and higher. And I heard about the drought in Africa, and we had a drought in Kazakhstan as well this year. I heard about drought in Colombia and Brazil from my colleagues. So the same was in Kyrgyzstan. So we are not apart from the world. That issues that are growing here and from climate activists and from world leaders is not apart from us. We have the same issues. And the things that you are talking about, this uh, sand, winds and like this, similar things are happening in Africa as well. So I think we can't be apart from 
all over the world. So when I was talking to this professor from uh, Miami, he told me that sea level is rising day by day. And he asked me about glaciers. And I told him that our small glaciers in Kyrgyzstan will disappear after uh, 30 years. So he was so disappointed. He said, so then Miami will go under the sea in the 13 years. So such a kind of tokens are going everywhere in a cop, yeah? But this thing is upsetting me. We don't have enough media members here to cover all this problem. So I couldn't meet media members from Uzbekistan, from Kazakhstan or Turkmenistan. I was alone there. And for the first day for high-level meetings, only three Kurdish journalists came to cover COP. And that was very upsetting. So from my um, perspective, we need to attract media to uh, climate issues much more. And journalists need to cover these issues in Central Asia much more. Because there are lots of grants, there are lots of opportunities to make documentaries and to make investigations. We need to educate our people. We need to be literate. Our uh, climate education was should be very high. The upsetting thing was that I didn't meet uh, with uh, scientists from high delegation members. They were very, very few, very few, and they couldn't answer my questions very well. So we need to update our scientific uh, sector as well as media sector on climate issues. This is on trend. This problem is going to grow day by day. So we are not apart from this problem. So mm-hmm. I think right. we need to be more educated. Right, right, right. Thank you. Uh, Riskel, just to briefly take your observation and then we move on. As we are talking about the um, causes of this issue, Bakhtigal is saying that climate change is a global topic and Central Asia is not immune to it. So anything to add which kind of reflects the view from Central Asia in this bigger discussion? Well, going back to this point regarding the Tanshan Mountains, the climate change, I think, is um, hitting hard this region, mountain region of Tanshan, because as the climate warms, more of the precipitation falls as rain, which is up to this point, decades ago, it was primarily snow. So, and this shift is melting since snow melts, you know, slowly in the spring and summer, so that provides steady runoff. But while when rain comes down, so that water comes off more quickly. So, which is why we're seeing more flash floods in the mountainous regions in Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan and in some parts of Kazakhstan. And the countries are in this region are not ready for this kind of change. We can see it clearly from the uh, impact. Because what they're doing is they're just acting as a firefighters. They're just uh, going and trying to deal with the problem, you know, when they confront it. But they're not making any preventative efforts to deal with these issues. And that, I think, more profoundly we can see it when it comes to water cooperation between the states. Mm. Yeah, water cooperation, certainly. The One of the growing signs that we see is the uh, the situation of Amu River as a result of lack of cooperation between Central Asian leaders. So, so this is the reality in the context of climate and climate change. Uh, so within this reality, what to make of comments made by Central Asian leaders there in Glasgow? How urgent is this? What should they be doing? And what are the consequences of further ignorance of this problem? Let's continue the conversation talking about these and many other questions very shortly.
First, let me recap the debate today on the Majlis podcast. I'm joined by Dr. Eric Friedman, a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter and the author of The Environmental Crisis in Central Asia. Riskel de Satke, researcher and writer with a full-time focus on issues relating to the environment and climate change in Central Asia. Bartigul Chinebaeva, RFR Kyrgyz service journalist who is currently on an assignment at the Glasgow Climate Summit. And Bruce Panier, the editor of Radio Free the Liberty Central Asia blog, Kishlok Awazi. I'm Mohammed Tahir, media manager and host of the Majlis podcast here in Washington, D.C., and we are discussing Central Asia's climate crisis. So, Bakhtagul, um, earlier you hinted, maybe briefly, very briefly, to start conversation with your documentary, the Kyrgyz Service documentary, I guess, which was also shown at the sidelines of the summit. Uh, tell us about the documentary and perhaps some of the some of the findings there about our documentary our colleagues from Kyrgyz service went to the high mountains in Sakul and they investigated small and big glaciers with support of UNDP they filmed a documentary called small glaciers will be disappeared by 2015 and it was shown in first day of uh, COP26 in Glasgow and that was a big interest to this film and in this film, uh, we are pointing on how a glacier is disappearing on a scientific basis, statistics. And that was, I think, it is a first film made by my colleagues that raises awareness on glacier issues uh, in Central Asia. And glacier issues, also clean water issues as well. Sure, thank you very much. Bartigul was the presenter uh, of this documentary, and uh, which is available on the Kyrgyz Service website. Um, so I highly recommend. It's very, very informative. In uh, the documentary, Eric, just coming back to the same question, the documentary kind of sheds light on uh, disappearing uh, glaciers and clean water. But uh, this is just two of many concerning elements that we discussed in terms of the climate change in Central Asia or environmental challenges in Central Asia. So what I'm wondering, as I take this conversation towards the conclusion is there any any critical point in this discussion for example if we cross for example this red line or this point or this deadline these are the list of things that is going to happen what is that critical line if there is anything like that well the 1.5 degree that everybody at the conference has been talking at as a target is no assurance, even if it were achieved to limit temperature rise by that much, that it would prevent the continuation of these problems. And we're going to see it. It's not just the glaciers in Central Asia. It's the fights over water. You see in Fergana Valley where the natural borders and the political borders are different. The natural borders are there. The political borders are artificial. We see it in the deforestation We see it in farmers and growers, whether it's livestock or crops, are going to see changes in where they can grow what crops, where their livestock can be grazing. So it has human food, human survival, and economic implications. And I think we're going to also see more stress on the the infrastructures that exist, the, the already horrendous irrigation system that in Uzbekistan that developed uh, during Soviet times to irrigate crops you shouldn't grow in the desert like cotton and wheat. Or the the uh, Sardoba Dam, the reservoir in Uzbekistan, where that May 2020 set of storms caused a collapse, did a huge amount of damage to agricultural lands and, and to villages. And the countries don't have the economic resources to strengthen 
and rebuild their physical infrastructures that we depend on so much, whether it's water to drink, water for farming, fuel lines. We'll see more of the electric shortages, the power shortages that Tajikistan wrestles with every winter. All those are additional implications beyond what the glacial melt means. Mm-hmm. Not very cheerful. Yeah, indeed. Riskeldi, also a second leg to my question to Eric was like, yes, this is an alarming situation. There has to be a point where cities or villages become inhabitable. Like, you know, the, the type of the smoke that you see in places like Tashkent this week or places like Almaty in a, in a harsh winter. I mean, there has to be a point where it becomes too dangerous for, for people to live, for human beings to live. What I'm saying is, what is that point? What is that point where it just becomes unbearable and how far we are from that point in Central Asia? Well, I think we've seen these points, not to that degree, but I think we've seen uh, outbursts this this year in northern Kyrgyzstan and, and uh, Kazakhstan as well, the drought in uh, Mangistau and Kuzlada regions. So we've seen protests over water. We've seen the farmers demanding that the country country's government fix the uh, irrigation system and provide more water. And I think these are the points that I think we will... We'll be seeing more and more in the, in the in the near future. But besides that, I think when you brought up this air quality status in these capitals around the region, well, the biggest problem is that some of these capitals and the city authorities they cannot even manage these uh, mitigation efforts because. I could bring up this example of Bishkek city, where every winter the city deals with horrendous smoke. And I believe last week or this week, the city of Bishkek city was uh, in the top charts air quality around the world, along with India and uh, China. So what I'm seeing on the ground is that these city authorities and, and officials, including officials, high government officials, they're not capable of fixing this issue because the country is hooked on fuel on coal mm. and to bring up more evidence of how disgruntled disgruntled Bishkek city uh, management is all these uh, new um, housing developments around the city they are burning coal and whatnot so and this is exacerbating the air quality uh, in the city and we were seeing this already now mm. you are saying in my opinion Yeah, you are saying that they are not capable of fixing this challenge, this issue. I mean, is it is it a matter of skill? It is a matter of resources. What is this? I mean, I'm just wondering, something needs to happen to, to mobilize, you know, authorities to get this thing done, to, to avoid a catastrophe that is impending the way I see it. Well, I think skill is uh, definitely a must mm. to have in the government of Kyrgyzstan because what we're seeing is the the same old faces. They they are not hiring professionals, mm. so they're not having professional uh, specialists running the government agencies like environmental agency, for for instance, or in the city environmental departments. They don't have just one example. This landfill that Bishkek city has it hasn't been fixed for decades and. There's still lots of problems involved, and I'm hearing there's a corruption also there. But it, the greater point is that I think this whole region has to come to as as one in to deal with the climate change uh, issue. 
Because what we're seeing at the moment is we're still seeing that political divisions in the region between the governments. So we're still seeing, or to that matter, we're seeing that even uh, they're having confrontations on the border, just like we see Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. Mm-hmm. Do. And so I think the main point is that this, the Central Asian region has to come up with, with integrity points. That's very critical. If mm-hmm. they get together and they start acting as one, I think they have a chance. But if they don't, uh, we'll be seeing the same. Okay, uh, Bruce, uh, to continue where uh, Riskelde left, I mean, this thing is getting serious uh, in Central Asia. In the meantime, how anyone cannot see what happened with RLC? Uh, it's just in front of everyone's eyes. How anyone can avoid this dusty picture that we see today in Tashkent or similar pictures that we see year after year in Almaty, in Dushanbe, in Bishkek, for instance. I mean, you cannot ignore it. You cannot avoid it. You cannot avoid seeing those the implications directly related to the climate change, to the environmental change that Central Asia is uh, going through. Yet, you know, at least from three countries, major countries in Central Asia, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan and Tajikistan, we have not even seen a formality participation in the major summit like Glasgow this weekend. And in the past, as I think I hinted earlier, in the past, they used to meet once in a while, at least for a formality talk to discuss issues like RLC, discuss like issues like, you know, irrigation or water sharing with regards to Am River. That is not happening anymore. What is going on with Central Asian authorities there? I mean, why despite this growing challenge, this thing is being pushed to the backseat in terms of their priorities? Well, I, I should note in, de, in defense of some of the Central Asian governments, and I have absolutely no reason to defend them, but hmm. they, 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 they did bring up the RLC when they had this Central Asian summit in Turkmenistan. They, 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 I think that's when they announced they were going to actually have a summit dedicated to the RLC. But, but so, you know, now that they're meeting again in the last few years, the subject comes up. I don't know how seriously to discuss it among other things. And I should also note that Tajikistan, while it might not have sent anybody, they held an annual conference on uh, water out there. Every, I think it's in June all the time. So, so it, they didn't send anybody there, but, but they do. They have been talking about it, you know, melting glaciers and things like that for a while now. Okay, I would agree with you that you would think with the RLC having practically vanished entirely now, dust storms, all this kind of stuff, that this would be a priority, if not the priority for the governments. But, you know, they have, there's a lot of stuff happening and it, it is a priority amongst many and not even like uh, probably the primary source of concern for these Central Asian governments. You know, we, we've heard about, you know, how coal and stuff, it, it pollutes the air and all that, you know, and, and everyone knows that too. But the people, when they don't get electricity and they don't get heat, they'll go out on the street faster than they will to protest against the climate. You got that concern. You know, what are you going to do to keep the people happy right now and keep them alive, you know, while, now that winter's coming? You know, and then and more generally and more long term, and, you know, and, and I remember this, and I'm sure a lot of people, everybody here does too, that, you know, in the early years of independence, water was already going to be an issue. Everyone knew, everyone understood before climate change was so such a pressing concern everyone knew that water was going to be a big concern but at the same time the governments of all these regions have encouraged population growth to help stake the claim to their territory right so the population of central asia when independence came in 1991 was roughly 50 million it's more than 70 million now those people need an abundance of things not just drinking you know but they have to grow crops with that you know oh, there's a whole list of stuff so that the population has gone up by almost 50 percent in 30 years and that's taxing the water system now on top of that you have drought you know so when you're 
any of the central Asian governments and you're trying to make a list of what needs to be done now and what can be put off, sadly, the stuff that gets put off is usually the environmental things because, they, like I said, they, their first priority is to make sure the population won't rise up against them. And that requires providing them with a bare minimum uh, of goods, you know, and that requires agriculture and, and, and running water to the to your flat at least some sometime during the week or day, you know, things like that. You know, and like I said, that's why it's unfortunate. They see the they see the examples of the effects of, of global climate change in their region, but you know, they just don't with the list of things they have to take care of, they've never seemed to put environmental concerns way up at the top. So what's the consequences of ignoring this, keeping this in the backseat? Where is this leading the region to? Well, you know, it's, again, to get back to water, you know, Islam Karim of Uzbekistan's first president famously said about 10 years ago that water would be reason for war in Central Asia. He was trying to menace Tajikistan and keep it from building a hydropower plant. But, but there's something there. <laughs> hmm. The further you are downstream, you know, the more this is going to affect you as the sources start to dry up. And, and the more powerful and more populous countries in Central Asia are downstream countries. So, you know, you have to worry about Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan and what's their reaction going to be. We've already seen them bargaining with Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan this last year to get more water. Uh, when Tajikistan was withholding some, for instance, you know, they had Kazakhstan bargain with them to make sure that more water would go into the Sirdaria and end up in the fields of Kazakhstan. Uh, similar negotiations with Kyrgyzstan going on. You know, what happens when Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan simply can't afford to release more water for these countries? So, like I said, there's there's a real problem. It, it takes a whole new way of looking at this and educating your society about how how conservation has to work in that region for everyone to keep going. And they probably should also be doing something about population control, where, where they encourage people not to have eight, six or eight kids. You know, because like I said, they can't do this for much longer. They're stretched as far as resources right now for people. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, with climate change, it's mm-hmm. It's going to push them right over the top. Yeah. You know, Eric, Eric, we all agree, uh, at least on this panel, that the situation is bad in Central Asia. It is getting worse. But beyond that, I just want to be able to pinpoint to something like a sort of a ticking bomb to say, hey, get your acts together. Otherwise, this is going to happen. Is there anything like that to point? Uh, there hasn't been yet in Central Asia. But what we saw with the Indian Ocean tsunami, in the past, did the that same thing for Southeast Asia. Hundreds of thousands of people died. I shudder to think what such a catastrophe would have if it were to happen in, in Central Asia. But that was a wake-up call for some of those countries, Indonesia, among them Bangladesh, India, in terms of at least looking at and possibly taking some initial steps that they could afford to protect those low-lying coastal fishing villages and communities. Uh, I don't think it's enough just to talk. And last month, the uh, United Nations Convention to Combat Desertification met in Almaty, and then the statement, these grandiose statements that we're seeing coming out in Glasgow now, the same thing. They talk about data collecting and sharing regional integration and more emphasis on science. And these are all good things, but they're they're not the kind of thing you'll see as an immediate, let alone a short-term change, a turnaround in attitudes or policies or laws. Hmm. It's important that they talk and not wait for a disaster, hmm. but maybe some of them do need a, a disaster to wake up 
and to realign, rearrange their priorities. Okay, thank you very much for that. I think we have to conclude the discussion. Maybe last, last point from you, Reskil Desatka. I mean, we, we have been very pessimistic in our conversation today, I guess rightly, given the situation there. Is there anything that you can share with us could be a source of optimism, the way the situation is? Of course, there are very scary scenarios when we compare the ultimate consequences that this kind of situation leads to. But is there anything, any hope, that you see in Central Asia, which uh, tells you that we might not be going to the type of situation that the Indian Ocean has, has been facing as a result of the environmental change or climate change? Well, I think, there, of course, there are positive elements involved. And what I can say is that if Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan, these are the most major uh, developed countries in this region, economically. If they realize some of their targets, as they say, by 2050 or 2060, especially when it comes to renewables, I think it would be a positive example for the whole region. Because Mm. if they develop well, then Mm. these uh, technologies will definitely take hold in uh, weaker states like Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. I can't say much about Turkmenistan because uh, that's whole another area Mm. and we can't say much about it because there's a dictatorship in place. But uh, I think if Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan will do that, then uh, I think we have a chance, yeah. Okay. Let's hope that they will realize this. With with this, I think, unfortunately, we have to conclude the conversation here, but uh, we will keep our eyes on on the uh, consequence of these challenges and we'll keep coming back to it, uh, at least to keep this in the spotlight on this platform. So thank you very much, Riskel Desatke, researcher and writer specializing in uh, climate change and environmental issues in Central Asia, Dr. Eric Friedman, a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter and the author of The Environmental Crisis in Central Asia, Bhaktigul Chinibayeva, Radio for Pedro Liberty's Kyrgyz service journalist who is currently on assignment at the Glasgow Climate Summit um, but usually she is in Bishkek and Bruce Panier, the editor of Radio for Pedro Liberty's Central Asia blog, Kishlok Owazi. Thank you colleagues for sharing your time with us today and this is it from me, Mohamed Tahir host of the Majlis, Radio for Pedro Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. Until next week, bye bye.